Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 53 of the Regato Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge what we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's episode, we're honored to learn from Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts about his fantastic new book entitled Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, which is published by Yale University Press. His book provides us with a thoughtful and critical look at forgiveness amid the pain and grief in our world. In this episode, Dr. Potts talks with us about what we often misunderstand about forgiveness. He shares ways forgiveness can cause emotional distress for individuals, especially for those who have been abused or traumatized. He talks about how forgiveness is an alternative to systems of justice that demand retaliation. He shares what the Charleston church attack and the Black Lives Matter movement teaches us about forgiveness. And he shares how to think about forgiveness when you have no desire to forgive someone. And at the end of the episode, Dr. Potts shares with us the story of anti-Nazi theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he was part of a plot to kill Hitler and what forgiveness meant to him. Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts is a professor at Harvard Divinity School and his focus is teaching on sacramental and moral theology, ministry and pastoral theology, religion and literature, and preaching. He is also the minister at Harvard Memorial Church. Here's our conversation. Okay. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your fantastic new book. I wonder if we can start, if you can share a little bit about the concept of forgiveness, how that like kind of evolved for you and also to inspire you to actually write this book. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a great question. Mike. Thanks. Um, I feel like forgiveness has been a problem I've been wrestling with for a long time. Um, a conceptual problem. I've always found it incredibly moving. I remember as a child, um, uh, you know, learning the story of Jesus and learning the, the kind of the gospel narrative, like one of the moments that two moments really stick with me. One's the parable of the prodigal son. Right. And that the son who comes home and his father embraces him without question, without judgment, just embraces this child who was gone. Um, and the other moment is also from the Gospel of Luke, when when Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like that, the absolute, like almost reckless love of that statement from mm. the cross to the people murdering him in that moment. I always found it very moving, you know, yeah. um, and and I've been compelled by, and and by saying I find it moving, like I'm compelled by it and I've always been compelled by it. I think what happened with me writing this book is I started to realize in the past 10 years how the model of that sort of self-effacing love has landed badly on a lot of folks in the history of the Christian church, right? And how, how um, telling victims, oh, you have the responsibility to forgive. It's your job to redeem your, your per the perpetrator. It's your job to redeem your abuser. The moral weight falls upon you. You know, just as I learn more about the world and learn more about, um, you know, the, the experiences of people I love around me. And as I became a pastor and met people in the church and trained with other people who I just learned that, like, boy, this that that commandment to forgive weighs really heavily on a lot of people and and causes harm to people who have already been harmed sometimes. Um, and so I was one of the things I did. One of the things I was trying to do with this book is square 
that moment on the cross, which I find so moving, and this teaching from Jesus, which I find really revolutionary and, and crucial. I mean, it's one of the few things that's in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us as we forgive, forgive, us as we forgive those who sinned against us, right? Like, yeah. it's core to the Christian message. That means, like, it's really important, I feel like, that we get it right. Or at least, what does it mean to get this right? That we not get it badly wrong in a way that reinforces harm or makes harm recur. So that's that's kind of the germ of the book is is critiques of forgiveness i've seen recently and and trying to square those critiques which i find persuasive against the moving kind of narrative of forgiveness we have in the gospels which i also find persuasive what do you what do you see as us as christians what are we getting wrong about forgiveness yeah I, that's a good question i think i mean i think just in a practical level i think as i said I think that forgiveness often plays out as further harm to victims. So let me just give it a story, right? So the, yeah. I, the first time I taught a class on forgiveness at Harvard Divinity School, um, you know, I had I was raising some of these critiques of forgiveness, but I was also talking about what I thought forgiveness might be and different accounts of forgiveness in the tradition and looking at the Gospels and looking at different rituals and so forth. Um, and I had a student who came to me for office hours. And this student uh, was second career in training for ministry, right? So first career as a, as a counselor, a social worker. Um, and this person had clients, had a, a client that she was working with who was herself, the client was a Christian pastor hmm. and was recently divorced from her husband, who was also a Christian pastor. They were both pastors and they were recently divorced. And, and the reason for the divorce was that she had suffered decades of abuse from him of mm. every variety, verbal, physical, sexual abuse from him for decades. Mm. And she had finally gotten free of him. And she felt this intense shame because she could not forgive him, quote unquote, forgive him. Now she wished him no ill will. She didn't want any harm to come to him. She didn't, she didn't hope for him to suffer. She was just grateful for the distance from him and did not trust him. But yet her community, her children, her ex-husband, and even her own kind of interior experience of her faith was that she was not a good Christian because she could not forgive him. Mm. <laughs> right. And, and the student came to me and asked, like, what? Something's wrong with forgiveness if this person feels shame because of this commandment. <laughs> right. So that's mm -hmm. the thing I think is wrong with forgiveness. Yeah. And I think what it I think what it ends up happening is I think because for complicated reasons, and the way that Christian ethics have developed, especially over the last maybe three or 400 years, but just in general, I think forgiveness has come to be too closely allied with a couple of things. First, forgiveness is understood kind of colloquially in our kind of conventional wisdom about it. Forgiveness is understood as the opposite of anger. So like when I say I forgive you, what I'm implying mm. is that I am no longer angry with you, right? And I'm not sure right, that's necessary. Right. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think those things need to go together. I think maybe you can say you forgive somebody and also say, I'm angry with you, right? The harm you, when I say I forgive you, what I'm saying is you harmed me and it's okay to be angry if you harm me. Now, yeah. what we do with our anger is a different question. Like how we, how we respond to our anger is a different question. But, but the idea that victims do not have, um, are not entitled to anger over harm. That's something that doesn't sit well with folks who have been harmed and advocates for those who have been harmed because it's natural and appropriate. And especially in kind of post-traumatic situations where, where emotions are volatile, unnecessarily volatile, like you can't, you can't say, I'm not going to be angry with you again. I mean, think about a trauma situation where a person has been deeply, deeply harmed. 
one day they may say, I don't feel anger against my perpetrator. But the nature of trauma is tomorrow or 10 right. years from now, they may wake up one morning and feel intense anger. Absolutely. And I don't, as a pastoral, as a, like as a pastoral response, I don't want to tell that person, oh, suddenly your forgiveness just failed because you're angry this morning, right? Now, so I want to, I want to separate, I think we ally, and it's not just in conventional wisdom. I mean, if you read like the, literally the best philosophers we have in the world today writing about forgiveness, they tend to think about forgiveness as the opposite of anger. And I think I want to, I want to think about forgiveness as not an emotion, but as an action, a behavior rather than a feeling, right? So we, especially victims, we should allow them to feel whatever they're feeling. And I think there is a, you know, a therapeutic response to feelings if they come in the way, if they get in the way of living a good life. But, but what a person feels is different than how a person behaves. And Christian ethics should be concerned with how a person behaves, right? Mm. The other thing that I think that forgiveness is often too easily collapsed into is reconciliation, right? If I'm no longer angry with you, then there's no reason for us not to be reconciled, right? And, and what, what conventional practices of forgiveness often smuggle in is this kind of push towards reconciliation. You need to reconcile with your offender, make it right, make it right. And suddenly it falls on the victim to make it right with the, with the offender by offering forgiveness. When I want to say like, well, reconciliation is a great goal. It might, it, it might be something that we as Christians, in fact, it, it sh the New Testament tells us reconciliation is something we ought to aspire to, but it's not always warranted. If a person has not earned my trust, if a person still is a threat to me, well, that, that would be self-harm to put myself in a relationship with them, right? Absolutely. So, so, so is there a way that we can think forgiveness separate from reconciliation? Is there a way I can say to, to the person who has harmed me, I forgive you, but stay away from me because, because I don't trust you because you haven't earned my trust. You haven't atoned for what you've done wrong. And our relationship can't be restored in any mean, meaningful way until there is some trust and safety um, and restoration or, or redemption or atonement or something between us. And yet I still forgive you, right? I think I want to look at this, this person from the story I just told, this woman who had been victimized for so many years. I want to look at her, what she has, the choice she has made, which is not to wish ill of her ex-husband. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a significant moral act. Because I think feelings of vengeance and seeking vengeance is kind of a natural thing that arises in human psychology and emotion. And for a person to go through everything she went through and say, I do not wish you ill. I feel like we, we need a word for that action because that's a significant moral act. And I think that word is forgiveness. And I think we just need to separate these other things out, which is like, you know, do I still feel, feel angry? That's more of a kind of psychological therapeutic question. Or should we reconcile? That's more of a practical question. But the moral question is, you know, do I forgive you? How am I going to behave based upon your harm towards me? And making the choice not to retaliate, I think, is a significant moral one. And one we, like this person... This person should feel like she's following Jesus's commandment rather than that she's betraying it. Mm. That's such a uh, helpful example you shared, um, and I also appreciate like the empathy you you show you show in like how careful uh, Christian ministers and Christians need to navigate. Uh, need to be when they're talking with someone about forgiveness, because you can, yeah. by the very act of telling them, you know, you should forgive them could be re-traumatizing them because you have no idea what they've gone through. Yeah. I mean, especially, I think, especially in situations of like abuse and trauma, right. Where, where often it's internalized as shame as this is my fault. Right. Like the, like victims of trauma and abuse often internalize that as shame. Like for some, 
Yeah. That's, that's an aspect of trauma. Like this is my fault. This happened to me because of something I did, which is never the case where right? that's not how abuse works. It's not how trauma works, but it is how a, a victims often feel. Right. And so for a pastor, a person of authority to come to that person and say, like, it's your responsibility to fix this by forgiving. Right. That just completely folds in to the traumatic psychology, which is arising and causing pain within that person already. Right. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think pastors need to be careful about the way they use the language of forgiveness and, in fact, allow people to feel free not to 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 say that I can't forgive. Right. And then to kind of sort out what that means. If a person, if, you know, I'm a pastor. If a person came to me and said that they had been deeply wronged by someone and said, I'm not ready to forgive, yeah. then, I, then I want to listen to them. I want to, hear, I want to hear why they're not ready to forgive. I want to hear their pain. And I also want to hear what, they, what I'm doing also, just because maybe I'm a scholar of forgiveness or whatever, as I'm trying to discern what do they mean by forgiveness? Like, do they mean I'm still angry? Because if they're still angry, what I want to say to them is like, you have a right to be angry. You were hurt. And anger is not a moral flaw right anger is not a sin there's a, a bishop who i quote an 18th century bishop who i quote in a book named joseph butler and he has this these sermons on on forgiveness where he writes he's like anger is natural god put anger into us anger is natural it's it signals to us that we're being harmed it's actually a safety mechanism within our psychology to let us know that we're being harmed so we can protect ourselves and others right and so if a person feels angry and they feel shame around that anger what i want to say is like you have a right to feel angry let's talk about that anger right that's to me, that's the first step there, because processing that anger appropriately and responding to that anger appropriately, if there's any chance of forgiveness on the way I understand forgiveness, it will mean engaging that anger in a, in a, in a productive way. Or a person says, I don't want to forgive because what they mean is like, I can't I don't trust this person. I can't be in relationship with that person. What I need to say is like, you don't need to be in relationship with that person. Right. You are safe. We'll keep you safe. Like my job as a pastor is to help that person feel safe, help that person feel cared for. And then also to just try to discern, are the moral categories of Christianity as this person's received them, are they making the harm worse, right? Are, are, they, are they being re-traumatized or triggered by the way that they assume Christianity says they ought to forgive, which, which I don't think they need to, they, they have enough to carry. They don't have to carry that additional mm. weight, right? And if I can lift that burden from them, that's part of my job as a pastor too. Mm. Um, can you help give us like a, a proper lens on how we should think about what forgiveness is. Because as I was reading your book, I started to question myself because like, and you, you just brought up, like some of us interpret it as the opposite of anger, which I've always yeah. thought of yeah. that. I was like, okay, yeah. I need to release this anger. I need to forgive this person. That's the godly thing to do. Um, and, it's probably, and it's also mentally healthy for me to release this anger. Um, yeah. And also a byproduct, byproduct of this is reconciliation. So I've kind of put those two yeah. categories that you mentioned is like, that's kind of forgiveness. But as I was reading your book, I was like, gosh, like some people who have hurt me in my past, I think about, gosh, did I just say that I forgive them as like a, a, rest, a spiritual recipe to kind of mm-hmm. uh, feel better? Yep. But Obama, did I actually really deeply forgive them because I still yeah. am hurt uh, by yeah. these people? So like... Um, I guess my question to you is like, how should we be thinking about what forgiveness is? Because now I'm questioning whether I've actually forgiven some people. Sure. So it, it depends who's asking me that question. My like my elevator answer or whatever. My short answer depends yeah. who's asking me that question. If if a person who knows the Christian tradition is asking me that question, I say forgiveness means loving your enemies. Now that's 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 begging the question a little bit because then you can say like, what does loving your enemies mean, <laughs> right? 
And that's a, that's an important question. And that's another moral problem. But I think that what loving your enemy means is means wishing the best for your enemy. But that doesn't mean that I trust you. That doesn't mean that we're friends. It doesn't mean that we're reconciled, especially if we're in active conflict, right? It might mean that the best thing for you is you need to repent. That is actually the best thing for you is for you to acknowledge you're wrong and repent, right? Um, you know, I am, as you know from the book, I am very ambivalent about the way criminal punishment and criminal justice works. Ambivalent is soft peddling. Like I'm, I'm very critical of the way criminal punishment works in, this, in the United States. Um, but I think that there are ways in which you can understand even loving your enemy to be like some forms of restraint or like if they are causing harm to themselves or others, loving your enemy might be like forms of, of restraint even, right? Like even forms of, of, you know, you know, I'm wary of the language of punishment, but even forms of punishment, but, you know, punishment in this country is so far from loving. I, I, I'm wary of using that word, right? Um, loving your enemy might mean telling the truth to your enemy. You have harmed me. I do not trust you. I am angry with you, but we can be angry at people we love. Right. That's right, okay. Right. Angry is not inconsistent with love. Um, so that, that's it. I think it's, and, and another way to think about that is, is, um, cause I also want to take seriously, like the reality of, you know, Jesus, Jesus makes this command in the sermon on the Mount, Joseph Butler, the bishop I talked about when he's talking about forgiveness, is preaching upon the love your enemy passage. When he's talking about forgiveness, I also want to grant that, especially for victims who have been severely traumatized or people who have lived through war and active conflict, like loving your enemy is too big a task, right? And I don't want people who cannot conceive of loving their enemy for an enemy who has killed their family or done something awful right. to them, like severely abused them. I think for for Christians, this is also where Jesus <laughs> comes in for me, um, or for me as a Christian, Jesus comes in, is is to, even if I cannot love my enemy, to acknowledge that God loves my enemy, that Jesus loves my enemy. And for fear you know, because I do not want to hurt the person who the, my beloved loves, right? Like God loves my enemy and Jesus loves my enemy. If Because I do not want to hurt the one that my beloved loves, therefore I'll show restraint. I'm not going to do what I want to do, which is exact vengeance. I'm not going to do which I want, what I want to do, which is retaliate or exact retribution. Not because I can love my enemy, but because somebody I love loves my enemy. And to protect that one, I'm going to, right? So for Christians, forgiveness gets complicated pretty quickly theologically, but it's loving your enemy. And if you can't love your enemy, acknowledging that God loves your enemy mm. and and trying to do, trying not to hurt God, right? Not to hurt God's a, a wrong phrase, but, you know, not try not to sorrow God by harming the one God loves. But that doesn't mean not being angry. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean um, reconciling. And, and it's all within the, you know, the practical conditions of the possible, right? That, so that's the answer for Christians. I think the answer I would make for a, like a broader audience, and I hope that this book has a broader audience as, as well, would be that is that forgiveness is an alternative to systems of justice which depend upon retaliation. The, the word retaliation comes from um, the, the Latin phrase, the lex talionis, which means the law of like for like. And the law of like for like comes from ancient codes of justice. So this is Hammurabi's code. We know it most well if we are from the Christian tradition or from the Jewish tradition, we know it from, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? Like if you if you take a tooth, you lose a tooth. If you take an eye, you lose an eye. And one thing that's important to signal, like to, to signal is that those teachings in the ancient world were radically, were radical teachings of equity, right? What that meant is that the king did not get to take the slave's tooth 
everybody's tooth was the same. Everybody's eye was the same. Like there was, well, not everybody. It was just mm. men at this time, right? So that, that qualify that. But but there is like a radical sense of equity in that teaching. But the way it is borne out, especially like in contemporary American society, is that like, you know, if you cause harm, then you owe time in prison, right? Through this completely unjust system of mass incarceration. Or even worse, I mean, this has changed recently at the federal level because of President Biden's pardon. But like, if you possess marijuana, this is this many years in prison. We have this kind of like, first of all, it's not like for like, because what is like possessing marijuana? Mm-hmm. How is time in prison like that? But this idea that like an offense requires a, a ref, an offense in turn, harm requires harm in turn, so everything can be equal. And my reading of the Hebrew scriptures, what's at stake in the Lex Talionis is not that harm demands harm in order for things to even out, but that everyone's equal, right? What I want to think the way I want to think through the Lex Talionis or forgiveness as a response to retaliation or as an alternative to retaliatory justice or retributive justice is to say that our system of justice has to acknowledge that everyone, like the, I mean, this is a Christian, but that everyone is beloved of God. And so how do we respond to this harm? This harm that has happened and this person that's been wounded, it doesn't equal things out if we harm the person that harmed me. How do we actually justly move forward so people are protected and so all of us can flourish together better and and i think retributive harm retaliatory harm doesn't work so 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 i would say that forgiveness in the kind of less christian definition forgiveness is um a non-retaliatory response to wrongdoing right Mm. like you know you see this in superhero movies you know justice is served which justice is served usually means is whatever harm was done to somebody else is now then redone to you Right. And what I want yeah. forgiveness to say is like, when we say justice is served, is to say like, we didn't need to harm you back for us to move beyond this harm. Mm. Instead, we created something else and moved towards something else. I, I love that you bring in a lot of social justice and human rights issues uh, as you're talking about forgiveness, because this relates to culture. Yeah. Um, so um, can you talk a little bit about like, what does forgiveness look like for marginalized people? who have been oppressed yeah. by systems yeah. like criminal justice, like racism, yeah. colonialism, how do they, um, how do they navigate through this, uh, these systems yeah. of oppression and, and have a forgive, uh, a mindset of forgiveness? Yeah. This I see this is one of the things I think is really important because one of the places where you see, and I think they're not wrong to make this critique, but one of the places you see a critique of forgiveness is within like contemporary activist movements. You know, this is not true of, 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 of everyone across activist movements, but you know, some in the Black Lives Matter movement say like, you know, forgiveness is, we're not ready to not be angry. We're not ready to reconcile with folks. So we don't want the language of forgiveness. And I think they're absolutely right to say those things, right? Mm-hmm. What I wanna say is, and I draw upon like the teachings of, of, of black theologians and, and other black Christians to think about this is what I wanna say is like, no, actually marching through the streets expressing your anger and not retaliating to me that that should count as forgiveness right Mm -hmm. like after george Mm -hmm. floyd when i saw when i saw people in the streets marching incredibly angry voicing their frustration saying there cannot be reconciliation until there is some kind of atonement but not going out and 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 doing to police officers what had been done to them not returning life for life like for like like to me, like that's non-retaliatory. That's a non-retaliatory response to injustice, which is yes. calling us towards justice. 
what I want to say is like, we should, we Christians should look at that and say, look at how forgiving they're being because they are not responding to these acts of violence with retaliatory acts of violence. Rather, they are coming out peacefully and, and articulating their anger clearly and, mm. and demanding there be some atonement. But they're not saying like, unless there's atonement, we're going to start a war. They're saying we deserve better. We deserve better. Black lives matter. To me, that's, that is what, that is what I think forgiveness looks like because it's not retaliatory. Mm. It is angry. It's not ready to reconcile. But it's also not doing what has been done to them, right? It's not responding like for like, but it, but yeah. And so, so to me, like, I, so I accept the critiques of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, another one of the moments where I really thought about this was after the Charleston shooting in 2015, when Dylan Roof was arraigned. Um, some of the family members, victims, survivors of victims of the of the of the Charleston shooting, some families some family members within some families, not all, some offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof. And what's really interesting is the white media, the national media kind of took that message and, you know, pasted it up very obviously, oh, the families forgave, the families forgave. The narrative became about forgiveness. And um, and what you didn't see quoted as much was the rest of those families' comments where people said, I forgive you, but I am angry and I will always be angry. Right? I forgive you, but you can right. never give me back what you took from me. I forgive you, but I want nothing to do with you. You know, I, I hope you disappear yeah. from my life forever because we need to move on and we, you can't be part of our lives. Like that part of their forgiveness was kind of not part of the larger narrative. Right. Um, but to me, it's really crucial to the way they were describing and understanding their own forgiveness, which was like, I'm not over being angry. I'm not, I'm not trying to reconcile with you, Dylan Roof, who shows no, no sense of any kind of um, uh, responsibility or remorse. Like they were when they were saying, I forgive you, they were not saying everything's a-okay, let's move on. They were saying, and in fact, there were some people who were from the Forgiving Families who wrote op-eds afterwards who were saying, no, we cannot move on. We, You didn't hear what we were saying. We were saying, we cannot move on. Lament with us, cry out with us, mourn with mm. us, right? And the most important thing we need to do now is mourn and lament and figure out how to move past this. But what they were, all they were saying is, we are not going to try to kill you the way you kill the people we love. But again, like, I feel like that's, that is a significant moral task because I'm sure for many of the folks who said, I forgive you, they, they were feeling rage and they were feeling murderous rage. And it would be understandable if they were feeling murderous Absolutely. rage. But, and so this is, this is what I mean. I feel like we actually, we have models of this already throughout our mm -hmm. culture and especially among marginalized groups who respond, um, who respond in non-retaliatory ways ways to deepen grave crimes and injustices sins we just tend not to call it forgiveness and i want to say i want to say like these are significant moral acts that that deserve the kind of weight and of of christian theological ethics to come to them and say like yeah this is what we're talking about this is actually the kind of behavior we're talking about when we talk about forgiveness you write that uh forgiveness is more like mourning yeah. Um, you talk about that. Yeah. I did, so one of the, one of the kind of working titles for this book was mourning for forgiveness. Right. Mm. And so it's a little bit of a pun. My publisher didn't like that title so much. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a pun. Because, I mean, on the one hand I meant mourning for forgiveness because I was like, we need to let go of what we think forgiveness is because it's hurting mm. people, especially hurting victims. Right. But the other thing is because I think I want to think of mourning 
or forgiveness as a form of mourning, right? Um, one of the things forgiveness does, and that's, this is why I think the Charleston families are important too, is when they offered forgiveness, one of the things they, obviously there were very mournful statements of forgiveness. Often forgiveness is, is conveyed in very triumphant terms in Christian language, like forgiveness is the victory over wrongdoing, right? But when these families offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof, they, they, they were obviously shattered and they said, we will, they, we will never recover from this. Our lives will never be the same, but we have to move on. And, and, and so we're going to, right? Like that's, that's mourning. Like to me, that's what mourning looks like. So forgiveness is a relationship to past wrong, which acknowledges that the past cannot be undone. Like nothing I do, no, like, especially in the case of extreme harm or violence like this, I can't undo the harm that was caused. Like if you, yeah. if you kill my brother and I kill you, my brother's still dead, right? It doesn't now, now not killing you doesn't mean that the crime is not addressed and there's, there is no other response. It's just to say that there is no compensation. I'm not going to be able to undo what has been done to me. And so the, 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 I have to begin from a place of, of deep mourning. Like this cannot be undone. And even exacting vengeance will not undo it. It might satisfy some desires within me, but it will not undo the thing that was, which was done. Um, and forgiveness, reconciliation will not undo it. This is the, like mourning is the first step, which is like the past is, it cannot be undone, right? Um, and, and I think on the, on the obverse side, when we think about something like repentance, I think for the truly penitent person to come towards someone that harmed, what they also have to acknowledge is I cannot undo what I did to you. Like my repentance is not going to make us make it right. It's not like we're going to be all good now because I repented. True repentance would be like, I can never make right what I did, but I want us, I want to try to start again, <laughs> right? That's, that's a deeper kind of repentance. So I think that these, these sort of moral postures, especially in the wake of, of really extreme wrong, have to begin from the idea that like what has been, what has been lost can't be recovered. And so whatever future we are going to live into, if we're going to do that, either as individuals or together, like has to has to be a future which includes the fact of everything I've lost. And to me, that's what mourning is. You know, I'm a pastor and, and, and I, you know, I deal with a lot of people who are going through loss um, and not necessarily around questions of forgiveness, but just around like personal loss. And, and, and I think mourning is really important and mourning is a good, but it's not good in the way that like a party is good. It's not fun, <laughs> right? It doesn't mm -hmm. feel good. It's just the necessary step of, when you've lost something you can't recover, okay, how do we move on into the future without this thing that I could not, which I thought I could not lose? That's mourning. And I think forgiveness, forgiveness is similar. It's when a thing has been broken or, or betrayed in a way that can't be undone, but you still want to live into the future. You have to begin from that kind of posture of, of grief and mourning. Mm. Uh, Matt, before we go, um, for those of us who are really having a hard time um, forgiving someone or something that's happened to us um, as a pastor, can you kind of speak to us about how to navigate that territory? Cause you're talking, you know, you're talking about forgiveness and it's important and uh, but sometimes it's hard for us to, to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there's three things in that actually, right? I can approach that three ways. Um, the first is, you know, in the same way that I, like, if someone comes to me and says they can't forgive, I try to listen to what they're saying. 
and and you know I'm not I'm, a, I'm not explicit about this, but inside my head I'm trying to listen. What do they actually mean when they say they can't forgive? Does it mean that they're still angry? Does it mean that they can't reconcile? Or does it mean they want to kill the person that did this to them? Right? There's mm-hmm. a there's a difference, right? Um, I think you know, and I've had people in my life that that I have had trouble forgiving, or at least that's what I've said to myself, and people who have had trouble forgiving me, right? Because I'm a human, and so is everybody else. I think one thing I would do is ask those questions of yourself. If you're having trouble forgiving, what are you actually saying? Are you saying you're still angry? If you're still angry, maybe you have a right to be angry and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be blaming yourself for still being angry. Does it mean that you're not ready to reconcile? Maybe you ought not to reconcile with this person and you shouldn't be mm-hmm. blaming yourself for not reconciling, right? Just try to relieve yourself of the pressure of this virtue as it has come down to us in Christian, in Christian thought. And answer your question, do I actually want this person to suffer? If you do want this person to suffer, then that's something to pray about or talk to your pastor about, right? Um, but also, like, you know, I, I feel like there are people in my world, in my life, who, in an intellectual way, I want to suffer. But I have, if I had a magic wand to make them suffer, I wouldn't, <laughs> right? So even the desire of wanting somebody to suffer, like, like think about that, too. Is that just your anger? Mm. Would you actually murder this person if you had a chance? Would you actually, you know, punch them in the nose? Again, if you would, that, think about that, what that means. But all those are questions I would, I would ask myself before I got to the question of, am I forgiving or not forgiving? So that's mm-hmm. one way to approach the question. Another way to approach the question is like a row of self-forgiveness. Forgive yourself. Right? Like mm-hmm. if you've been harmed, then you've been harmed. And it's natural to feel anger. It's natural not to trust. It's sensible not to trust and to want reconciliation with someone who has harmed you. It's sensible to be angry. It's sensible to feel hurt. It actually, it's okay to have those feelings of vengeance, right? Martin, I don't know if Martin Luther, Martin Luther is attributed to saying lots of things. I'm not sure Martin Luther ever said, but, but one of the things he's attributed as having said is that it's okay for a bird to fly through your hair. Just don't let it make a nest there. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's okay for a bird to fly through your hair, but, <laughs> but like if you, have, if you have murderous feelings towards someone who, who hurt you gravely, I think you can forgive yourself, forgive yourself for having those feelings because you, I actually didn't go out and murder anybody. Like it's actually, it's normal psychologically, psychiatrically, biochemically natural to have these feelings of rage surge up in me. I'm not going to make myself feel shame. You ought not to make yourself feel shame because I had this surge of rage, which is just a natural response to grave harm. Take that as a signal, your body telling you, you have been harmed, <laughs> right? And, mm. and, and know that it's not your fault. You were harmed. It's not like your fault because you're angry. You were harmed, and so the anger is arising naturally. So the third thing is to be, is to be, um, is to be self-forgiving. And the third thing is that, the third thing I would say is that we also have this forgiving God, right? So even if even if you can't forgive, even if you can't forgive yourself, God is forgiving you for your failure to forgive, right? So one of the figures I feature in the book. Briefly, in, in one of the chapters, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, it was a, a a Christian Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II. He had the chance not to return to Germany, but he did return to Germany. He he, he joined like secretly joined this resistance movement. He helped many Jews get out of Germany. Um, he also earlier in the 30s had written very eloquently about Christian nonviolence, and about pacifism and about loving your enemy. He wrote this thing on the Sermon on the Mount called The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about how important it is for us to follow the teachings of Jesus as a as a as teachings of peace, where we, we do not 
engage in violent activity towards our enemies. Like he, he wrote a lot about this. And then just before he was arrested, he was eventually murdered by the Nazis in a concentration camp. He participated in a failed assassination plot against Hitler. And a lot of people who read Bonhoeffer are like, what is he? Did he sell out on his morals? What's what's going mm. on here? Right. Did he did he not really mean it? Or or was it that his ideals when tested against reality, mm. those ideals failed? And actually, none of that was going on. What happened is Bonhoeffer knew that he could put his trust in. He could not put any faith in his own actions. All his faith had to go in the grace and mercy of a loving God. Right. Which is that he still believed the commandment to love your enemy and not to do any violence weighed upon him, even as he participated in an assassination plot against mm-hmm. Hitler. He just knew that the obligation to protect others is also a commandment of God. And he could not do both things. Mm. He had this, he lived in this fallen world where either action would betray the word of God, which is why he just trusted God's forgiveness, right? Mm. I must do this. I mean, this is what Luther said here. I stand. I can do no other Bonhoeffer's rationale, he never explicitly states this, but in the book, I covered this, his rationale in his book of ethics, in his writings about this, I think what he's saying is, you know, the the command of God to love your enemy and to not commit violence against your enemy never lifts. But sometimes in this broken world, we have to act. And if I trust only my actions to save myself, then I'm lost because the world is tragic and I cannot act purely. And there will be times when I have to, to save millions, I might have to kill this one person, right? Or participate in an attempt to kill him. So what he does is say, I do that, but I don't celebrate it as a virtue. I acknowledge it's a sin. And I come mm. before God saying, I, I was given these two options and I took this option and I know it betrays your command. But I also know that you are a God of grace and mercy. And so I don't pretend that the sin I committed is a virtue because it saved people. I know that it was also a sin. It's a good thing we have a loving and forgiving God to respond mm. to our failures in the world, our necessary failures. And so I think that's the third thing. If you can't forgive... God does. And God forgives you. And, and if God didn't forgive us, if we did depend upon our own purity to save ourselves, then we really would be lost because all of us are caught in these situations all the time where there is no truly purely good moral act. We have two bad choices and we cannot but decide. And it's in making those choices where the forgiveness of God and our trust in the forgiveness of God becomes so important to us as Christians. That's beautiful, Matt. Thank you so much um, for sharing that and also for coming on the podcast. Before we go, uh, can you share uh, about your podcast? Yeah, yeah. I'm part of a, I'm a, I'm a, so I, anybody who reads this book, and I hope a lot of people read this book, but anybody who reads this book will know that I engage not just the Christian theological tradition, the Christian scriptural tradition, but also novels, um, especially contemporary novels, especially novels written by some of the folks from the marginalized communities you spoke about. Um they kind of capture the problems and possibilities of forgiveness, I think, sometimes better than the Christian theological tradition. So I, I do a lot of reading of, of literary fiction as well. And so the podcast that I, that I co-host is called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And it's, uh, it's a Harry Potter podcast. Uh, some former students of mine started it. And then one of them left the podcast and the remaining co-host invited me on. And it's, um, it's for like kind of millennial and Gen Z folks who find a lot of meaning in Harry Potter. It's, it's we read the Harry Potter books closely and we just try to see how it can help us navigate moral, the moral complexity of our lived lives. That's awesome. That is super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun podcast. It's a really great community. Some, some people are Christian, right? And some people have no relationship to, to religion. Um, but it, it makes for a really interesting conversation about what does it mean to, to do good and to live well and to, to look at like a, a narrative as a way for thinking, as a way of thinking through 
the really complex moral terrain of our lives. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, well, Matt, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just for your time today. talking to Yeah, thank you, Mike. Books. It was a, a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.